Hey, dear listener, we've got a very special and important conversation coming your way in just a moment on today's episode of the Career Builders podcast, a necessary conversation about race. We'll be joined by two amazing guests, Nia Tubensianchil and Rashida Geddes, who are fantastic in joining us for a roundtable discussion about racism in both the professional and the personal sphere. We were so focused and present with our guests that we forgot to highlight where you could go to learn more about them. So stay tuned as I've added a brief outro with information on where you can go to find out more about Nia Tu and Rashida just after the show. That's enough of the small talk. It's now time for a big talk on race. Hello and welcome to the Career Builders Podcast. I'm Mike Bird. I'm Lisa Plain. Today we are going to have an uncomfortable but necessary conversation about racism and we have been joined by two fantastic guests today to have it. Rashida Geddes comes back to our show from uh, episode 31 called Building Resilience and Balancing Obligations. She's a millennial women's leadership coach, talent consultant, speaker, and host. She empowers young leaders to unapologetically own their value in the marketplace and confidently ask for what they want. She's also invested in seeing more inclusion and diversity through representation in the workplace. Nia Tu Bensi Yanchil also joins us this time from New York City. He's a career coach with a master's level education in mental health counseling, a former HR analyst, recruiter, and content creator, as well as a senior career advisor at Ivy Exec. He helps mid-career professionals get unstuck in their career progression and job search. A global citizen, Nia Tu has grown up in the UK, the US, Ghana, and France, and is a passionate social justice advocate. Nia Tu and Rashida, welcome to the Career Builders Podcast. Thank you so Thank much you for much. having us. Yeah, I appreciate you inviting us here. Yeah. Thank you guys for, for being on board with this. This is uh, definitely new ground for certainly me, Lisa, I believe as well. Mm -hmm. And we don't really know exactly how this episode is going to sound, but the act of doing it, I think, is what is really critical. Um, and I guess before we get to some questions that we kind of have, this is not going to be a pure interview it's going to be more of an open roundtable discussion around some topics that we've brought up together. And um, before we get to those, just kind of a, a disclaimer, I guess, of sorts and saying that we are not experts necessarily in uh, EDI or DEI. I feel like that just depends on where you are. I've heard both of those acronyms, mm -hmm. but we are experts in our own experiences in our lives. And I, I look forward to kind of just learning from all three of you and sharing our experiences and asking some really thought provoking questions and hearing where this thing goes. Do you guys want to add anything before we get going? Sure. Um, I'll jump in. Yeah. Uh, this is Niatu. Uh, and so first off, you know, I'm really happy to be, you know, invited to this conversation. Uh, necessary is a very appropriate word for, you know, what we're trying to do today. And we hope that we can, you know, model, you know, what this can look like for people to engage in this dialogue. That's part of the conversation we had leading up to being here today. Um, it's not easy, but if we come to it open, being willing, being willing to be vulnerable to learn, uh, then we can all move forward, you know, collectively to, you know, change things around and make this, you know, uh, not to get too lofty, make this world a better place. Essentially, that's ultimately what we're trying to do. Absolutely. I, I definitely agree and would chime in with those points and, and would add that we are really trying to model, you know, the diversity, inclusion and belonging piece. You know, the idea that we're cultivating and co-creating this episode and the conversation together 
as well as trying to, as much as possible, shed some light for those that are in workplaces or in spaces, whether they um, benefit from the privilege or not, that they're realizing and they're aware of it and what's happening and that anybody at any place, at any point in the hierarchy of their career can make a difference, can have, uh, can, can be a, a point of change. Um, and it's the realization that we all have that power. Totally. I'm with you there. Lisa, anything you want to add? I think it's just important too to just highlight the diversity in our voices today and understanding that we are each individual voices, but there's many voices out there to be heard on this topic. And so we're, we're a starting point um, for learning more and sharing resources. And I'm excited to get the conversation started, but that there's much more work to be done than just this conversation. Mm -hmm. Totally. Yeah, we are just continuing a long journey here today. Okay, why don't we get to our first question around what was the first time that each of us became aware of racism? Uh, Nia, too, do you want to go first on this? I'm, I don't really have an order here. We can just kind of play around with this as we go. <laughs> sure, sure. Yeah, no problem. If you don't mind, I have two stories that come to mind uh, regarding this. Um, <clears throat> the first one comes from uh, third grade. That was the first uh, time I was exposed to racism, but I know that in retrospect as an adult, but wasn't aware of it, you know, at the time uh, when I was third in third grade. Uh, what happened is uh, uh, the younger brother of one of my classmates, so second grader, um, called me a black butt. Uh, we were near the library. I think there's something to do with getting a book or being in line. There, there's some little incident happened in which uh, he decided to invoke you know, my, the color of my skin uh, to put me down and have me step back from whatever the situation was at the time. Um, just to add another layer of context, the story is that I attended the United Nations International School. So that's where this incident took place. Hmm. Uh, and so uh, this was a white kid, uh, Polish background, because I know, you know, his brother, uh, they have Polish background, but they are born and raised in the United States. And um, he somehow knew to weaponize the color of my skin to put me down, you know, even as a second grader. And so that just uh, goes to illustrate how deep this is and how it's something that, you know, is just learned through osmosis almost, you know, in the society uh, that a second grader international school could think to do that. So that was the first time um, I was, uh, I can remember being exposed and being aware of, of race and racism. Uh, the second story, We'll flash forward to when I was about 12 or 13 years old. Um, my father and I were in Bloomingdale's in New York City. So I grew up in New York City, lived there from first grade to 10th grade. Um, and my father was shopping for dress shirts. And so we were going to different piles uh, looking for shirts. My dad likes a banded collar shirts, mm -hmm. uh, uh, yeah, banded collar shirts. And so uh, we need their, their hearts fine. <laughs> and so as we're moving around, I noticed the store attendant following us every time we moved. And uh, she was rearranging clothing that didn't need to rearrange, which is kind of what tipped me off. Um, and I was incredibly upset. By this time, I'm old enough to understand, oh, we're black, therefore being followed. Um, and so it was incredibly, you know, angering and insulting. And um, what I learned that day is that, you know, your credentials don't matter if your skin is black. And the reason I bring that up is because my father uh, works, uh, worked for the United Nations at the time. In fact, both my parents did. Uh, as a journalist. And so it didn't matter his level of education. It didn't matter that we could afford to be in the store. It didn't matter that we we're dressed, you know, just as well as anyone else in there. Our skin color marked us for surveillance. 
And so those are my first two uh, incidents, the ones I can remember now being first exposed to, to racism. Hmm. Thank you for sharing that. Thank you. So the first thing that strikes me as I relate to your story is I'm really sorry that those things happened to you. Um, it's difficult because it's, it's so shocking and it's not the first story that I've heard like that either. Um, but in my own story, the story of my first experience with racism, and this is just to bring up the privilege discussion, is that I wasn't the, when I first experienced racism, I wasn't the subject of racism. I experienced racism by seeing it with somebody else. And I can't imagine what that must be like. Yeah. Yeah, it's 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 hard <laughs> to to put it frankly. You know, it's it's incredibly difficult uh, to become aware of something like that at such a young age. You know, growing up is hard enough, mm -hmm. uh, let alone being also additionally aware that your skin color makes your journey harder. Uh, no matter what it is you have to offer the world or bring to the table, mm -hmm. uh, it's a little bit harder for you for a reason you had no control over. Right. Yeah. And I would say for me, um, again. Niatu's story really did resonate with me as well, just for the simple fact of um, how it happened to him. Uh, my first experience was um, along the same vein where I was just, I think I was coming down the stairs or I don't know where exactly I was, but what I do remember was the feelings of feeling embarrassed and helplessness and anger as someone told me that I looked like dirt and that I didn't belong. And for me, it was um, coming from a different school and coming from a different community. I had my brother had decided to send me to a school outside of our district. Um, I was, I guess, pegged uh, from kindergarten in my school where in uh, in my area that I had, you know, I had, I guess, additional, you know, skills or I was a little bit gifted and maybe you should send your daughter to a different school outside one that offered more opportunities for her to grow. And, and I had grown up in a housing development project um, where a lot of kids went to a local school. Um, and this was an opportunity to be outside and go outside of my school. So it came that opportunity um, and the, the, the privilege of being able to go to a different school, to be able to be around uh, diverse students uh, meant that I was also, uh, from my experience, being, 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 being shown as different. Uh, so that experience for me really um, was the first time that I said to myself, well, why am I being singled out? Why am I being told that I look different from any of my other friends? Um, and it was that, at that point that I realized that in order for me, in order for this taunting to stop, that I would need to either have to speak up or to fight back. Um, and that was something that I really had to learn early on. And I think it's something that can resonate with a lot of people of color. Black people especially having to stand up for themselves or having to potentially fight back um, because of instances where they have been called out just for the color of their skin. Yeah. <laughs> it's definitely a, it's the kind of conversation where I'm probably not going to be able to talk so much in, in response to <laughs> what a lot of us are sharing, but it's really about just sort of listening and internalizing and and not responding sometimes and just letting it letting it become part of how we think 
I think for me, in terms of answering the question of becoming aware of racism, <laughs> I think it's very possible that I didn't really have my first uh, black classmate until I was in grade six. So I was about 11 years old. I grew up initially in a small-ish Canadian town, mainly white, and moved to uh, a city closer to Toronto, within the greater Toronto area. And yeah, I'm, I'm pretty sure his name was Evan. I'm pretty sure he was the only black kid in our class. Um, and I don't, I don't consciously remember treating him differently, but it's a question of, did I recognize his, his racial background, his cultural identity? Like, did I take any steps to kind of, you know, ask questions or get to know him for, for who he was through the lens of race? Right. I'm, I'm kind of one of those examples of like the colorblind white guy, which is, you know, terrible to say that now as I was growing up, I had, I had no idea what that was. And I think I didn't really become all that aware of race really until probably sometime in university, probably after I was starting to coach um, more high school athletes who were from all kinds of different racial and ethnic backgrounds. And I think that I did have, certainly by that point, I had some implicit bias set in for sure. I can remember this and it's, it's hard to talk about this, but like <laughs> watching Michael Vick playing quarterback for the Atlanta Falcons and being like, man, black quarterbacks are really athletic. Like I remember that, that thought coming into my head when I was a teenager. And of course, like well, that's racist and it carrying through to the way that I maybe not treated people, but the way that I thought about some of the guys that I was coaching or, or being around or coaching with. And it's been a real, it's still a journey obviously, but coming to grips with like, there's still so much work to do to really get to know the people that I've been able to work with. And that's sort of where my awareness around racism is now, I guess is how I'll put that. I appreciate you sharing that, Mike, um, and sort of the impact that it had on you, just kind of realizing, oh, this is a way that I, you know, been thinking without necessarily being super conscious about it. And that's one of the biggest, you know, things about racism is that a lot of it is, you know, it's sort of in the air that we breathe, right, you know, uh, in, in society. Um, it's just embedded through messaging and TV and movies and, you know, all sorts of different places. And so uh, we're all, you know, uh, breathing in that same air and it's going to have residue and impact no matter who we are. Uh, some of us are victims of it and some of us are, you know, it's not even necessarily about being perpetrators of it, but we, we carry it along without, without contesting it. Uh, if, if you don't mind, Lisa, I want to ask you, what was the, if you can share just a little bit what the incident was you saw and what impact it had on you. I'm just curious. Yeah, absolutely. It's similar to Mike's in that I was in grade six and I went to a predominantly white school um, and we had a, a student from with an Indian background come to our school for the first time. Um, and I'm, I'm very much an empath and so I, I tend to take on people's energies and I did become friends with this person and she she was definitely bullied right out of the gate and it has always struck me as something that i've had a hard time understanding because people are 
all so valuable. And it's been very much um, eye-opening kind of since that moment of realizing that because people look different, they're going to be treated differently. And so that was the first example that I had seen. And um, it's interesting because feeling those feelings, you want to do something, but often, I, I mean, I'm so glad that this conversation is happening and that this movement has gotten to where it is now because I wish that at that point there had been a way for me to have a conversation about it, if that makes sense. So kind but, of enabling, oh, sorry, go ahead, Rashida. No, I was, I was just saying, I think when, when we are kids, and it's, it's the understanding that we are not born thinking these ways. These are things that we are socialized through media, through what we see, through what we hear, through what's around us. Um, and I think of my daughter who is six years old and for her and her friends, it isn't really much about the color of their skin. It's about you play the same games that I play and you like the same things that I like. So I think that there, there comes a point in our, for some, our journey as kids where we are the innocence of who we are and each other is then replaced with us seeing the differences and for some reason that being a threat versus it being um, something, even our, our differences could be something that we could celebrate. So instead of it being, and it's something through the cultivation of what we see, what we hear, what we are taught, that, um, that, that, that transition happens. Yeah, and that, that is like one of the great questions that I'm, I'm asking myself right now is like where where do we get this um, sense of threat from? Like, where, where does that feeling come from? I have no idea. But you're right. There's something that happens as we grow up. And maybe, Nia, too, I know you have kind of a counseling background. Maybe you can weigh in <laughs> specifically on that. But, like, we, we lose some of this purity of thought as we get older, for the lack of a better term. Mm -hmm. I can totally resonate with what you just said on that, Rashida. And I'm like completely stumped as to where the concept of threat comes in. I mean, a lot of it, as you know, Rashid and I were highlighting is through its socialization. That's, that's where it comes from. You know, one of the things that uh, people are trying to show and emphasize so much now is the fact that racism is, is, you know, learned, it's taught, it's not inherent to us as human beings. Um, and so if you think about, you know, popular culture, um, just think about your typical, you know, crime drama show, uh, Law and Order. Well, they, they do a decent job of, you know, everyone's a criminal. Um, but, uh, but, you know, your, your average, you know, police uh, drama, the bad guys, the people taking away handcuffs are always black and brown. Um, you know, the image of the scary black male has been, you know, the angry black woman has been ingrained into popular culture on uh, not only the United States, it's spread worldwide because of the power of the United States um, and quote unquote, you know, the Western world. And so um, through no fault of your own or our own, the image of, you know, the, the scary black man um, angry black woman has infiltrated so many things. Your average TV show, your average, you know, uh, newscast. Who do they show being taken away? 
how do they describe you know the perpetrator of a crime they somehow never fail to mention it's a black person when a crime's committed but a man committed you know such and such an, uh, a crime when it's a white person and so uh we're all we're all career coaches here right uh we we trade in storytelling mm -hmm. and so what's the dominant narrative that has been established about black people and people of color in general it's a narrative that reinforces us being scary us being you know, uh, belligerent or derelict or anger, whatever the mm -hmm. case is. And so that story is powerful because we tell our clients stories are powerful. That's how you're going to get a good job by convincing people through your stories that you're a good fit. And so this is, you know, the, the, the work that's been done uh, that has brought us to where we are today. I think that ties as well into our next conversation point around the void that's created by excluding people of color in art in stories and thought leadership and beyond that because it has been predominantly white storybooks that we're reading as children and so the stories that we're being told as children are exactly as you're saying they're they're predominantly white people as the heroes in the story and i think that that does create a huge void yeah i i think going into this um this conversation point, the thing that really comes up for me, because I've spent a lot of my life working in education, is um, not seeing, I guess, diversity of thought in general. Like I'm now <laughs> assaulting with questions the way people are taught in schools. I don't understand like the the norms that we we evaluate people through in things like writing in things like being able to to create an argument is it like is it all biased on on a white perspective like is it because having worked in um a predominantly white school i've, I've worked in an independent school that was run basically by an all white set of administrators with very, very, very few white teachers. How, how can there be like diverse thought in the way that people learn in, in that context? We're talking about a school that's not all full of white people, but a lot of white people and a lot of white people who are going to grow up to become potentially major, major decision makers in our world and potentially just perpetuate systemic racism. And for me, that was one of the big things when we talk about like, where's the void? Like that's, that's one of the early spots for people in terms of engaging with racism that I have noticed and truly believe has to change. I think when we think about historically black indigenous and people of color, their voices have been silenced. And there's been a heavy price to pay for anyone that decides to speak up and speak out. Um, and it's something that's been deeply ingrained and flawed uh, in the system that we have. Uh, and it's because this system dis disproportionately benefits white people. So if they if that's the majority um, and they are the ones that are making the rules, then any dissension, any point of contention is being silenced because it, it it faces it has it it makes people have to face what's actually happening and what's going on and mm -hmm. when you face something when you know something you have to do something so the fact of the matter is a lot of times it's being silenced because it's a better you know how do we keep the status quo well we 
we silence anyone else that wants to do something that's different. So I think it is it is super important now, not only, and I think people of color, black people, indigenous people have been speaking for years. Um, I think we've been marching and we've been, you know, speaking about it in different spaces. Um, and for, for many people, they've been doing that to their own demise in a sense in, in that mm. in that social structure in, in the place in the hierarchy that they have because they might have lost their job or they might have been put out they might have been silenced in many other ways or blackballed or, or whatever it may look like and um, I think now what's happening is that there are white people and the majority that are coming in and saying no this isn't right and we're also lending our voice to that as well and I think that's the important piece it's it's saying let's not silence these voices anymore. Let's hear what they have to say, no matter how uncomfortable it makes us feel, no matter how much it makes us have to question our privilege and at the same time actually have to do things to change it. This, this conversation is necessary because these voices are helping us all move forward. I think that we have to understand that our differences are our strengths. They are the things that will make us better as a human race. Um, and once we realize that and, and allow everybody's contributions to be valid, I think we will, we will all live in a better world um, where we can be proud of, where we can be proud to raise our kids into. But I think right now, our generation especially, is really being challenged with this because it doesn't make sense and it isn't right. And it's no longer acceptable to silence these voices, not only in our personal lives, but also in the corporate um, spaces. And, uh, um, oh, you go ahead. <laughs> okay, I just want to, you know, piggyback on what Rashida was saying. Um, the point about silence, I think, is really important. And it made me think about what the impact of silencing, you know, voices is, you know, people of color, uh, women, uh, you know, other marginalized communities. Um, it made me think about uh, erasure and minimization. And so when you silence people, you're in effect erasing them, you're erasing their presence, their ability to influence. Uh, their ability to um, to have a you know literally a voice, which is what silencing is, right? And uh, when you do that, you know you are preventing you know we talk on business better decisions from being made, right? Um, with minimization, I'm talking about minimization of issues. You're preventing important issues from being raised because those voices aren't included or or heard, you know, at the table in that room at that executive level. And so uh, just a couple of impacts, you know, of that. Uh, think about the, uh, do you guys remember the Pepsi commercial, Kendall Jenner, uh, a couple of years ago? <laughs> where, if, for those of you listening who may not recall this, um, there's a Pepsi commercial where there's some sort of march, you know, a protest happening, very similar to Black Lives Matter march. Uh, Kendall Jenner gets involved, and there's a, a standoff between protests of police. Kendall Jenner hands a policeman a Pepsi, and everyone cheers, and that resolves whatever the issue is, <laughs> is that they were uh, protesting against. And so uh, Saturday Night Live spoofed that because clearly there was not a black person or person of color in the room to say, hey, Pepsi, this is not a good idea. This will not play well. You, you can't resolve, you know, racism or social injustice with, with, with a Pepsi, you know. Um, and so when there are, you know, diverse voices in a room, poor decisions are so often made. Uh, the more recent example, Starbucks, you know, yeah, we're for Black Lives Matter, but you can't wear Black Lives Matter gear in our stores you know what <laughs> um and so you know erasure and minimization or trivialization of issues i think is a really direct consequence of you know not having diverse voices in the corporate setting 
There's also increasing research that's been done that say that having diverse voices increases innovation, which is really important. You can't have innovation if you're only seeing mm -hmm. one perspective and one point of view. So the more often that you can increase the, the voices and the perspectives, you're going to be taking your business forward. Absolutely. And I think we're such a, we are such a global, like we are, you know, Miato, you, you talk about having had and lived in different places. And, you know, most of us have had an opportunity to visit different places and we've been in rooms with and have had an opportunity to connect with people of diverse backgrounds. So we are becoming increasingly global um, as a human race, as a community. So the, the, the um, thoughts around the status quo remaining, it doesn't fit. It doesn't fit our model for how we how we operate as a global community, and the the fact that there are more than one there are more than one you know voice perspective types of clients, uh, and the only way that you can actually speak and understand that client is by having people that actually understand that client base, that understand that perspective, that understand those realities, and I think it does absolutely take having diverse individuals at the table, diverse individuals contributing at the table, not just a, a placeholder for, um, mm -hmm. for making sure that we, we meet the quota, but really having that voice be heard uh, and having that voice um, make, have, having that voice have a, a true impact in the team is super important and it's super valuable for an organization's longevity and, and sustainability. Yeah, just, just anecdotally to kind of play into that is just the best performing team I've ever been a part of was a coaching staff of a football program that had uh, trying to remember exactly here, but I think we had a number of, uh, we had a lot of diversity, not just from the standpoint of race, but also in terms of multi-generational uh, presence and different thinking and just uh, it reflected in the the composition of our team as well. It was the most racially diverse team that we, that I'd ever coached and teams really, I was part of this group for about four years and just always admired the difference of, of opinion and thought that we were able to explore together as a coaching staff and then walk out of meetings together, pulling the rope in the same direction and being able to lead our diverse group of guys to a whole lot of high performance after that. And just like, seeing that now i wish i i guess i wish i'd experienced that much earlier in my life but it's just proof in my head of just the direction we have to go in at some point because it's it, it's better for better for business as we've said but also i think just better for us as as people as self-actualizing beings so mm -hmm. that's what i've got there i i feel like as career coaches and in the career space too, I feel like I've been very lucky to have clients from all sorts of different backgrounds with all sorts of experience. And I've learned something different from every person that I've ever coached. And I, I can't imagine not having that type of experience now that mm. I've had it. Yeah. It's amazing to think that there are some people in the world that haven't had that experience, just kind of like trying to, imagine myself in their shoes for a moment, not too long. 
All right, so let's let's talk about how systemic racism impacts the professional world and what we can do individually to to take part in, in changing that. So <laughs> did, did you have something you wanted to say, Mike? I was like, I'll, I'll like go up to bat first on this. Why not? I can't just always ask the question and punt it over at everybody else. That would, uh, I think, be irresponsible at some point. If I don't go first, there's no leadership there. But um, yeah, just I go back to my my earlier story about what it was like seeing it in in education, and um, certainly not being able to sort of resolve issues because of a lack of perspective. Like if we had a student, for example, I'm, I'm drawing a very specific example here right now, and I'll leave out all names for the sake of privacy. But, you know, I was in a school and we had one of only a couple of black students and was going through some big issues with drugs and uh, different socioeconomic background from a lot of the other students in the school. This is someone who, you know, and this is true in a lot of educational institutions. This is someone who was kind of identified as someone who could come into the school and hopefully contribute to the school in a variety of ways in the eyes of the people who are making the decisions, right? Uh, in athletics, I'll just, I'll just say it the way I, I remember it being in athletics, in terms of just um, creating a more diverse student population that allowed people to be exposed to a different, you know, here's a person of color. And then again, awkward, just saying it out loud like that that we invited this person in and didn't really have a way of understanding what their reality would be like, again, because of a lack of black teachers, a lack of black administrators, a lack of just awareness of our, of our biases. Um, and until like being unable to really help this person, I think is, is kind of how, I view systemic racism problems or it's one of the things that I look at is like, how can I help more currently some of the students that I work with who happen to be uh, largely from India? I know, I know very little about their upbringing and now I'm learning more and about their background and how they think. And when I say they, I mean like as a, as a community that's, that's too generalized, but like how could they be viewing something right now? How could they be looking at it? Um, so until I think we kind of explore some of these deeper, like we explore these blind spots basically that we see in, in organizations, I don't really see how we can continue to, to advance everyone or begin to advance everyone in a more equal way to go back to kind of, to go to the equity side of the discussion. I don't know if that made sense, but it's what I, it's what I've got right now. Feel free to ask me any questions you've got. I heard the example you shared felt to me like a clinical example uh, or a textbook example of tokenism um, with bringing yep. that that gentleman in um, to, you know, uh, fulfill, you know, a, a quota of one of saying, hey, look, we have one. Um, and when an organization does something like that, they're setting themselves and that individual up for failure. Um, because the environment has not been prepared to properly receive that person, make them feel welcome and integrate them into, you know, what's happening. 
Uh, I think we just we we started this discussion talking about you know is it whether it's EDI or DEI, uh, the inclusion piece is so critical, which is why it's been you know uh, added you know to it, um, and, and the equity piece of course because you can invite me, but if I don't have a voice, then I'm just you know dressing on 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 the wall. You know, uh, there's no real purpose for my mm -hmm. presence except to you know demonstrate that you sort of care, <laughs> um, but in a very yeah. very superficial way. Um, and that, that's a problem. Uh, if you're going to do diversity, you need to mean it. Um, otherwise it's just for show. I think too that, sorry, Rashida, did you want to? No, go ahead, Lisa, go ahead. I was just thinking about representation in this sense in terms of tokenism. And I think that that's why representation is very important and not just having one voice because that one voice doesn't represent the whole. So it's really important to have more than one diverse voice at the table. Um, and I think that that's something that people don't often consider and it's, it, it can take many different forms too. Um, I, I've lost my train of thought a little bit there because I started to think about something else. So Rashida, if you have anything to... <laughs> I was gonna say, you to understand the symptoms, we, we have to, before we can actually diagnose the problem, we have to understand the symptoms. Um, and it's really important for each one of us to educate ourselves from where we are. I think systemic racism is not going to go away through this one movement, through this one call to action that we have right now. It is, it's a, a series of ingrained behaviors over the course of many, many years and centuries that has resulted in where we are today. And it requires us undoing that. And what's required first is to really educate ourselves on where we are, what does that look like for individuals in the workplace? What does that look like for people in their personal life? And then really start to break down those systems through conversation, through dialogue, through having those uncomfortable moments um, where you actually have to check yourself. You have to check your own biases. Um, you have to check how you played into that system and, and where you need to, what you need to do differently. I think for me, a lot of the racism bias that I've experienced have been uh, very covert, especially when, it, when I talk about navigating white spaces. And for me, that looked like, you know, not having my work being recognized, um, having the value that I brought to the team minimized, having um, the 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 team like the the idea of me bringing bringing me in on the one hand to prop up diversity and inclusion and then the moment that i start to get a little bit of traction with my influence a little bit more traction and and comfortable with expressing or or challenging the certain ways of doing things then i become a threat you know you you, you want to pet me as i come in the door and prop me up as this Look what we have as someone that's helping us bring in diversity. But at the, at the, on the other end, the moment that I start to exert that influence, it becomes a threat to the, to the way things are being done. So I think that, that we have to look at that and how that plays out. And when you look at the numbers and when you think about you know, people of color being highly educated, however, holding you know, less than in the United States, less than 4% of executive or senior leadership roles. When you look at women of color being underrepresented among Canada's top earners, um, when you look at women of color occupying only a small percentage of management positions, how do we get to a, how do we get to 
having executives and senior leaders if we don't even build that pipeline? And how do we get to that pipeline if we're not even including black and brown people in management roles? So it's there is a whole there is a whole chain that needs to be changed that needs to be relooked at in order for some real change to happen. But it starts with everyone educating themselves on where they are, what their place is in that system and structure, what can they do from their their point of power, their point, their position in uh, in the hierarchy of things, and then having those uncomfortable conversations, speaking up in those moments where you know something that is being done isn't right, because this is a long game. It is not. It is not going to change overnight. I do see. I know we see a lot of swift action being taken right now from organizations who are really denouncing the racist behaviors of employees so much so that they are, you know, firing them. Contracts are being blown out. Branding deals are off the table. So much is at stake now. And I think that's why people are really waking up is because they realize that now whatever they say and do can have a very real impact on the relationships and clients and, and their career. And I think that's something that we as people of color, as a black person, I've experienced my whole life. Everything I do has been kind of looked at through a microscope. And it has been, you know, any move that I make has always been judged more harshly than my colleagues or counterparts. So I've always moved through the world making sure that I am conscious of that. And I think now, I think a lot of white people are, being con are, are seeing that and are being conscious of that because of what, what they're seeing happening to other people who are doing, you know, who are, who are overtly expressing their racism and I think this needs to happen it needs to continue to happen and I think that we also need to check each other we need to check ourselves we need to check our friends uh, in order for that that change to actually happen it's a really important point and also I mean these are habits that we've had ingrained in us for our, our lives and to change a habit you need to do something daily it needs to be something that you're not just coming to now and then it's something that in your life needs to change drastically and drastic change starts from a small act yeah i wanted to, just Absolutely. to piggyback of, of what you know rashida was saying um the the pipeline issue right so again we're career coaches and we're trying to talk about the the professional space um you know my name is niatu bensiential and i wonder what people think when they see that name on a resume uh, maybe they can identify its national origin. They don't know where it comes from. It might sound black, you know, to them. I don't know. But, you know, there are studies that show that a resume with a white sounding name gets twice as many callbacks as a resume with an ethnic or a black sounding name. Um, and so it starts just at that level in the professional world. If your name sounds too black or too something or too whatever the uh, marginalized group in that country or region is, that person is less likely to get a phone call, even if they're equally qualified with the with the white you know resume that that's sent out in the study. And so we have to understand that it starts at that level. Just the lack of the not affording opportunity, right? They can't even get in the game because of what their name sounds like or looks like. Um, and so you know, uh, for me, knowing that information, I it makes you wonder how many of my you know resumes did not get a call back you know, because of what my name sounds like, what associations they might make with my name. 
And, you know, that's what systemic racism looks like in the professional space um, is not is not getting a phone call <laughs> because of your name. Um, it also looks like, uh, you know, coded language. So a lot of what Rashid was saying is about the covert things that happen. So, for example, if you have a person of color interviewing and they're deemed not a good cultural fit in air quotes, um, then that could be, well, who's the, the, the dominant culture that they're not fitting into? So we need to ask us ourselves that question. Um, and so, you know, a lot of things that happen can be explained away, which is one of the most insidious and infuriating and tough to defeat parts of racism is that you can find objective or ostensibly objective, you know, reasons to explain what happened. But the truth that underlies it is something, you know, much deeper and much more negative. Um, and this, you know, in the professional space, how racism, you know, can appear. Um, and, you know, it's microaggressions, it's not going to, you know, a diverse schools to recruit and claim there's no pipeline, but you're not going to where you can find those diverse candidates. Um, and so there's also the issue of, you know, uh, there's lack of will. Um, and so that has to be, you know, named and, and attacked as well. Um, and so uh, just support what Rashid was saying, it is about if you have power and access and privilege, interrupting those processes raising your voice say hey this isn't correct um and not just voicing it but making the changes to the policy um because i'm sure you know companies can they're always looking to expand their recruiting pool so you can intentionally expand your recruiting pool to historically black colleges in this in the cases of uh, the case of the united states or to more diverse schools in the cases uh, of canada i don't know canada very well um but you can do that I want to I want to add a little bit to what Niatu said because I worked in recruitment, um, and one of the reasons actually I got into recruitment before um, before was because of the fact that I myself was having challenges in that process. Right, I had performance was solid, my track record was solid, and yet still I was coming up against rejection after rejection after rejection. And to Niatu's point. It's not even, you know, I can understand the rejection when you get to an, a hiring manager interview um, and the hiring manager may be saying that they went with another candidate. But rejection from the onset, right, from not even the opportunity to have the conversation. Um, so for me, that led me to, to reach out and have conversations with our executives. So here I am, an entry-level employee, looking at the Rolodex of the company and saying, who is the highest person that I can speak to about this issue? And it just so happens it was you know, the chief diversity officer uh, or the chief, in chief inclusion officer. So having those conversations about what, is, what can we do differently? What is being done? What do you have in place right now to actually um, hire and, and leverage the transferable skills of employees? And now I was actually looking to move within my organization. So you'd think that with that experience, with that track record that would be easy for me to move and it wasn't an experience. I later found out actually that um, I had been in some, some regards blackballed by one individual who for some reason had, was, had disdain for me. There was an incident that had happened where I guess he didn't get the response that he wanted um, and he made it his mission at that point that anybody that I knew and anybody that knew her 
I would make sure that they knew that she was not a good person to hire for anything else, or she was not a good person to move up. And that was based on this person exerting their power for one, not even coming to me or having a conversation with me or saying, you know, the, when you had told me no for that, that, that thing or that, well, that ask that I had for you, that really, you know, impacted me or not even a conversation around what it was that they had a disagreement with me about, but they decided to yield their power and their privilege and influence to be able to change the course of my own career in that division, which meant that for many years, I was not able to move from the position that I was in, despite having the track record of performance. So if you think about that in an in a organization where there's thousands of employees and I'm just one, Imagine to how many other people that is happening to. And if you have someone that has that track record of performance, that could potentially be an amazing leader for your organization down the line. You've already cut them, them down because you've not allowed them the opportunity to actually be able to, to interview, to share what value that they could bring. So when I went into recruitment, I, I said that that is not going to be the way that I approach it. Um, and if that meant that I had to be on a phone call and talking to more candidates than what you would normally, or who, how many candidates you would normally speak to in an interview process, if that meant sharing more profiles with the hiring manager um, than what would normally be the, the standard so that we can bring in some more diverse candidates, that was my step where I was in that organization's change to be able to, to, to bring in a different piece of thought bring in more diversity. And, and I can tell you even from that position, there's still, there's still a hiring manager, there's still a director or senior leader above that who are making those final decisions. So even if I handed a diverse slate, there have been times where the only people that were not selected were the individuals that had diversity. Um, that had cultural wow. diversity wow. and it was yeah. it wasn't something that was said it was it was an unsaid like you know there's there's could be five names and the names that go forward are all the names of individuals that are very much culturally the dominant and when we're talking about Quebec it's you know Quebec French names anything that was sounding ethnic anything that was different now the, the hiring manager could have had their own reason as to why they didn't choose those other candidates and they did but those even even with those those steps that i took to actually get those individuals in front of the hiring manager it really does it really does take a changing of the senior leadership a changing of of bringing in different individuals to help making those decisions to be able to really see the change happen at all levels I feel like that's such an important point around what we individually can do is just acknowledging our own bias and bringing that to the forefront. So as you mentioned, people who are in positions of power or decision-making positions of being aware of what those bias might be. And there's a really interesting, I worked for um, a large company that they diversity inclusion was at the forefront and it was part of our annual training and one of the resources that I wanted to share today was it's a, a Harvard study um, and it's called the Harvard Implicit Bias Tests. And basically you can go to this website and go through a number of tests to identify your own bias because until you bring it to the surface, you won't change it. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. Totally with you there. That's, uh, I personally am going to go check out that study right after we get off this call. Um, because that's where a lot of my own conflict has been. It's been around implicit bias. I think that what you both have just said, Rashida and Nia, to kind of plays to this image, uh, this kind of cartoon that it's not really a cartoon, it's pretty serious, but um, the image that you found on LinkedIn, and we'll put it into our show notes, of a black woman sitting on a chair in front of a long table of all white men in suits, and the caption is, describe what you can bring to this company. I think that it sounds like kind of summarizes a little bit what you said, Nia, too, in terms of if you have privilege or you're in a privileged situation, you got to do something different to have different results. And for you, Rashida, it sounds almost like it's a, it's a sampling of your own story. It almost sounds like from what you just spoke to us about. Is that accurate? Absolutely. I, I think that I've had to, in my own experiences, had to stand up for myself when no one else would. Um, and I've, I've shared this before in, in different, different mediums and in different spaces. As a woman of color, I am always being challenged. Every idea that I usually bring to the table is being challenged in some way. So I definitely have to make sure that I have all of my points. Um, and I really come with a convincing argument that I really come with, you know, everything laid out for what that looks like. Um, but for a white male, oftentimes that, that privilege of not ever having to be challenged, um, in a lot of cases, in a lot of spaces, and I'm not saying that all white men go through life freely, not ever being challenged on, on anything, but I'm just saying for the most, the, the most part. If you come up with a, a strong idea in a meeting, you know, we've, we've, there's many examples of, you know, someone raising their hand in a meeting and saying uh, something and then being minimized. And then someone else at that table, a man, um, you know, a white male make, say, making the same comment or expressing the same idea. And all of a sudden, everybody is rallying around it and saying, let's, yes, let's, let's put that into action. Right. So those that's the reality that we often face. And, and whether we see it or not, it exists. Um, and, mm -hmm. and I, I couldn't, I couldn't agree more with that, that photo. It's, it's oftentimes like you are constantly being challenged. You're constantly being asked, what, what do you bring a value? What, what do you bring a value? And if you, and, and that's why this, the idea of black excellence is not something that we've as a community have, have just decided that we want to, you know, just put around there. It's something that we've had to do in order to be able to move through a lot of these spaces. If we are not exercising yeah. black excellence, we are on the chopping block. We are, you know, there's a possibility that we will no longer be in that position. There's a possibility that we will be challenged um, and that we will be minimized for the value that we bring. If we don't, if we are not on our A game all the time, that one, that one instance, that one instance that I just shared with you with this individual and that individual went on to become a VP of that division. So if he did that to me, how many other people could he potentially have done that to that he said, you know what, I don't like the way you responded to me. I don't like the fact that you said no to me. And for that reason, you're not going to move anywhere. So I, I, we have to really check ourselves. We have to check the people around us. And, uh, and if you're in a group of friends and you have a friend that says, you know what, I'm, I'm making this decision based on this rationale, question them, mm -hmm. challenge them, you know, to think about, 
think about things differently because it has such a profound effect on people of color. One decision has such a profound effect on people of color because to get that one opportunity required so many attempts to be able to get their foot in the door. So just acknowledging that uh, and being aware of that. Yeah, that's powerful. And it's, it's not always easy to have those conversations, but they are just like this conversation is necessary. Those conversations are necessary as well. And I feel like it's really important for us as white individuals to be continuing to have those conversations in our friend groups. And it's something that we can do that is very accessible, that does have an impact. It might not have an immediate impact, but having that conversation plants a seed. Yeah, I mean, I forget where I heard this. I've heard in several different places, but it's, you know, start where you are with what you have. Um, and all I think any of us are advocating for is to, you know, use your influence within your sphere of influence. Uh, no one's asking you to give a TED talk tomorrow <laughs> about, you know, how we're going to end racism. Uh, that's not any of our jobs. But what we can do, you know, is to talk to our friends, talk to our family and all of that. Um, I, I'm pretty active on, on social media uh, and I, I talk about social justice a lot because it's very important to me. And one way that I always try and enter the conversation is by talking about uh, sexism as a man. And so one of the hardest lessons I ever learned uh, was in grad school uh, in my, my counseling psychology program where we're forced to examine you know, our attitudes, our biases, our stereotypes, where those came from. One of the hardest things was having to own the fact that I'm a sexist. And let me, let me clarify that and be, be clear on that. Uh, it's not that I subscribe to those ideologies. It's not that I actively commit sexist acts or believe in doing so. It's that simply by virtue of being a man, I benefit, I have male privilege, and therefore I'm a sexist just by virtue of that. And so what that means is it's my job to work to end sexism because I benefit from the structures that uphold male privilege. I didn't ask to be born a man. I didn't ask or earn male privilege. I just got it because of my chromosomes. <laughs> and so that, that's one of the things that that's how I try and enter into this, you know, as far as if, if I have to contend with uh, this, this ism, this, this, that, that we're facing mm -hmm. um, through no action of or, or fault of my own, I have to own that and then act actively against it. And so that was really hard because, you know, as any man who, who doesn't believe is a sexist would say, I have a mom, I have a, I, for me personally, I have a daughter, I love women, all these things, I'm a good guy, but it's not about that. <laughs> um, it's not about that at all, I, I benefit. And so when it comes to racism, it's not about you know pointing the finger and saying that all white people you know are bad people. It's that you benefit from a system through no fault of your own, and uh, you know ultimately at the end of the day, it's not the job of oppressed people to end their own oppression. And so we can't ask women to end sexism and misogyny. That's our job, Mike, me, and you, <laughs> as men, to work on that. You know, because we hold the privilege in this situation. So we mm -hmm. stop our boys from saying, you know, vulgar and rude things, and in those conversations. You know, that's our job. Um, and and you know, the messenger counts. And so, as Rashid was saying, it's really important for white people to talk to their friends and their family, because Rashid and I won't have access to those rooms or those conversations. 
Um, and so, you know, again, start with where you are and what you have and enter into the conversation knowing that, you know, with your privilege, you have the ability to make an impact and own, you know, the ism that comes with your privilege, uh, whether it's ableism, whether it is, you know, um, uh, uh, discrimination against, you know, the LGBTQ community, you know, homophobia, um, you know, all those things. If you're in a privileged class, it's your job to actively resist it, which is why the term anti-racism is becoming, you know, is being pushed to the forefront right now. It's not enough to say I'm not racist. You have to be anti-racist. With you there, <laughs> it's, it's about finding. It's about now acting on it. I think is and doing it more and more and more and indefinitely, <clears throat> indefinitely. Excuse me, until change is made. I'd like to take that as an opportunity to share some resources now because I feel like there are a lot of people in the black community sharing so many amazing resources. And it's also up to us as white people to be sharing amazing resources as well and sharing them into our communities. So I um, I have a friend, I've, I've been having these conversations in my friend groups and I've had a lot of great resources presented to me and a lot of um, interesting things that I've found as well. So one of the things being a career coach is I recently discovered that most of the career books that I have on my bookshelf are by white people. And so one of the resources that I came across is seven seriously inspiring career boosting books by black authors. And this is something that was posted by the muse. So I'd like to post that in our show notes for anybody who's interested. And I'm going to be also buying these books myself. Um, another great thing. So the Royal Ontario museum in Toronto, for anybody who has kids who wants to have these conversations with their kids, they're offering story time on Tuesdays at 11 a.m. And this is something that they've been doing, but the books that they've been reading have recently, actually, I don't think it's been recent. I think that they've always had a diverse book choice, but there's some really great books that they're reading to children at that time. So you can actually go on YouTube to their YouTube channel um, and read these stories or have these stories read to your children. Um, and we'll post that in the show notes as well. Outside of that, there's on Instagram, um, some hashtags. So blackout bestsellers list is one that I personally have been following along with. Um, the Vogue challenge, microaggressions and white privilege are all hashtags. And in terms of talking about habits, these are things that in my social media feed, it's something that I'll be constantly reminded of and it will be top of mind now for me because my feed is now changing. So that's been important for me. And there's a few accounts to follow as well. Um, and I know that you have some as well. So Layla F. Sad um, and The Conscious Kid as well have been great ones. Cool. Thank you for sharing that, Lisa. I'll add in as another white person trying to find resources and learn every day, uh, just a little bit more. Um, <laughs> I like reading, but I'm a slow reader and I'm reading slowly through a book by a guy named Desmond Cole, who is a Canadian Toronto-based journalist uh, who wrote a book called The Skin We're In, talking about sort of his life and his experiences um, as someone who was chronicling um, a lot of 
a lot of the Black Lives Matter movement, a lot of just racism in general in the Toronto area, and for a lot of people who look to Canada and say, whether you're from Canada or not, and you think uh, there's no racism here, this is going to completely dismantle that belief if you actually take the time and read it, um, because the the specific stories that he gives and the numbers and the data in terms of just like where we've got it all wrong <laughs> is it's pretty compelling um, to kind of help learn about the United States and and that context a little bit more watching the documentary 13th. Whoa, that was eye opening. And um, definitely as someone who did not grow up learning about U.S. history, uh, learning about, you know, like a white perspective on Canada and the world. Um, just, I have more work to do there, but that was an excellent starting point for me. Thanks to you, Nia too. I've, uh, subscribed to the email list of color for change. Um, and it's actually, I, I love it. I know it's, it's something that you're a big fan of and uh, correct me if I'm wrong. You're actually considering kind of contributing in a, in a bit of a unique way. I won't answer that for you, but, um, it's, it's all out there and it's just a matter of going out and looking for it and, it's not that hard. Uh, so I just, dear listener, you've come this far in the conversation with us an hour in, keep going. That's what we encourage you to do at this point. I think that there are so many great resources online and now we have, we have it at our fingertips, right? The, the idea of, I don't know what to do or to read or where to go. The internet is your friend, you know? Um, I, I've been online a guide to allyship for those that are looking at how they can be a better ally, how they can leverage their privilege for good. There's the book called The Memo by Minda Hartz, who talk about the experiences of being a woman of color in the workplace. Um, there's the book White Fragility. I know that, Niatsu, you had also shared that as well mm -hmm. by Robin D'Angelo. Uh, so there are so many great resources available to us if you just take the time to actually go online and do a quick search and just delve yourself into it and find what connects to you and to uh, to where you are in this journey. Um, but know that the resources are there for you to be able to to educate yourself and educate others. Yeah, I'll just jump in on that note as well. Um, so just a, a slight correction, Mike. It's a color of yeah. change. Dot org. I say color for change. Yeah, yeah. So it's color of change. Dot <laughs> org. No worries. <laughs> it's uh. all good. It's all good. Um, and just a couple more, uh, you know, books and resources people can check out. So I am personally currently reading uh, How to Be an Anti-Racist. Uh, it's number one bestseller in New York Times right now for a good reason uh, because of the moment we're in. Um, there's a book I read in grad school called Overcoming Our Racism, The Journey to Liberation. That was really powerful. Um, and then uh, there's a, a white gentleman named Tim Wise who uh, lectures a lot. His, his career is, is talking about racism from the white perspective. Um, he's got a book called White Like Me, Reflections on Race from Privileged Son. Um, and I'll do one final one, which is for if you don't like to read, uh, here's video. <laughs> um, so uh, this former NFL player named Emmanuel Acho uh, has a series he just started called Uncomfortable Conversations with a Black Man. He recently had Matthew McConaughey on his second episode. That's on Instagram. Uh, if you just search Acho, A-C-H-O on Instagram, you should find his account. Um, and if I could just make a quick point um, that I, I, I forgot uh, earlier on, a lot of what we've been talking about, you know, through this conversation, uh, especially, you know, with Lisa, you mentioned being an empath, 
you know, when you're sharing that story. And I think you have such an advantage in terms of entering this intense conversation because of your empathy, right? That's already inherent in you. Um, one of the biggest challenges in my view is the empathy gap between, you know, uh, the white community and the black community or people of color in general. And it's this, you know, inability through socialization to feel something when, you know, black people and people of color are suffering. And that's what I hope we can start to close by having these conversations. Um, if you're able to have an emotional reaction, I believe that you can be inspired to take action, you know, to make change. And, you know, we're talking about, you know, humanity and human lives. And so, you know, yes, we were talking about this in a career context, but we can't be, you know, uh, leave alone what's happening in the world right now. What's been happening for, for centuries um, is that lives are lost because of racism. So, um, you know, we can't skate by that. So we have to, you know, tell the truth, right? Um, and so in these conversations that we're going to be entering into, uh, we educate ourselves, so we have facts, we have historical knowledge, we understand the roots, the evolution, blah, blah, blah. Not that you gotta be like PhD experts, <laughs> but know something, you know, to enter into it. Uh, and then name it, you know, name what's going on. But the, the key thing is the empathy. We're all human beings. If we can't feel for one another, then we can't, you know, really make change. I just wanna make that plug that it's about empathy and empathy for your fellow human being, regardless of, the wrapping of their muscles and skeleton, you know, in <laughs> skin, um, and what color that is. And so that's what we need to try and, and change. That's what we're trying to, you know, break down right now. It's a really powerful point. Thank you. Yeah. I think that's probably a pretty good point to close on for now on this conversation that we've had today. And I'm sure it's something that we will have again at some point and hopefully with progress behind it. Um, thank you so much, Rashida Niatu, for joining us today. So appreciated. Yes, thank you so much. Jim, thank you both. Yeah, thank you for having us. Appreciate it. Awesome. We'll call it a wrap at that for the Career Builders podcast. I'm Mike Bird. I'm Lisa Plain. Our guests, Rashida Geddes and Niatu Bensi Enchil. Take care. Feel free to reach out to us if you have any questions, comments, thoughts. Hopefully, not too much. I prefer like, you know, thoughtful mail versus hate mail. But if you have if you have something that comes up, don't be afraid to share it. This is about a conversation that we're going to continue. Take care, and we hope you'll join us again soon. Bye for now. Okay, and as promised, if you'd like to find out more about Nia Tu Bensi Enchil, go check them out at avenircareers.com. That's A V E N I R careers.com love a coach who's got French in his company name. You can also find him on LinkedIn, linkedin.com slash IN slash Niatu, N-I-I-A-T-O, as well as at Avenir Careers on Instagram and Twitter. And you can find out more information about Rashida Geddes by checking out her website, rashidageddes.com, or looking for her at the handle at Rashida Geddes on all social media platforms. Thank you for joining us on today's episode of the Career Builders Podcast. We'll be back with you again next week. Bye for now.